You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. So a few weeks ago, those of you who are regular listeners will remember that we talked with Jeannie Thompson about a piece of research from the Stanford University Longevity Center and Fidelity about life events and stress. And the research found that these events, and these are things that happen to every person every day, things like divorce and changing jobs and having a baby and moving and caring for a family member, they impact our health, our happiness, our weight, our performance at work. In other words, they impact our total well-being. And we also learned that the average person has four of these events every single year. Well, my guest today, Dr. Nancy Snyderman, my friend, Dr. Nancy Snyderman, has just come through a period in her life where she had way more than four, way (laughs) more than average, including, as many of you likely know, leaving her job at NBC News, where she'd been for a decade, and as many of you probably don't, a divorce and the loss of her dad. But she has regrouped. She has moved on. She's in the studio with me today to talk it through. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Jean. This is so great to see you. It's so great to see you, too. You look fabulous. Thank you. I can't believe, and I said this to you on the phone when we were chatting last week, I can't believe it was 2014 that all of this happened. Yeah, I mean, Ebola crisis happened in 2014, and for those who don't remember, I and an NBC team went to Liberia, we reported a stringer we picked up, it was a day higher, ended up becoming positive with Ebola, survived and is fine, but we returned to a nation unhinged. And I'm such a scientist, mm-hmm. and I knew I wasn't exposed or posed no public health risk, nonetheless was quarantined at my house, and I stepped outside of the grounds of my house and was chastised publicly, privately, and by Governor Christie. And it was really just, I think, in 2014 when social media was really coming into its own voice and calling the herd, if you will, of people that thought we're not following the rules. So death threats, um, haranguing my children, oh my goodness. Uh, police presence outside my front door, hiding two foreign journalists at my house so that nobody would know that they were there too. It was uh, crazy. And through the process, I lost my confidence about who I am and had to all the time tell myself, although I didn't think of this, someone else told me this, Deep down inside, I'm a good person who made a bad decision. I didn't kill anybody. I just was arrogant that this rule didn't apply to me because it was stupid and stepped out of the bounds. But returned to, I think, a workplace that wasn't happy. I wasn't happy and um had to then step back and figure out, okay, who am I at my core? It's a very, very hard question 
to answer. And I, I've thought about it. My husband is retiring from the job where he's been for 20 years, mm-hmm. thinking about who he is when he's not doing that job. And it's made me do very much the same thing. If I wasn't doing this job, what does that mean? I, I don't want to. I don't want to dwell on the past, but I do just want to say that even the journalists who reported on what was happening at that point admit that they got caught oh, up. Rich and, Besser was one of my first calls at ABC News to try to say, okay, uh, and I called the CDC and all the. I mean, I reached out to my colleagues who were scientists, but you go to the core of who are you? Yeah. And so for 30 years, I've identified myself as, hi, I'm Nancy Snyderman. I'm a physician, journalist, and mother. Easy. Well, then all of a sudden, the journalist sort of goes away. And I realize that at the core, I have always been a doctor. And that once I went back to those basics of what does that look like now, if you take away the glitz of journalism, what does it mean to be a doctor in 2015, 16, 17? And I redefined that for myself because one of the other things I'd done over the years is I was a very well-known surgeon. Mm -hmm. And as one of the first female head neck cancer surgeons in the country, I had stepped out of the OR to pursue my journalism. So the surgery was gone. The journalism was gone, but the core of what I always wanted to be as a doctor healer was still there. So it was a search for that person. How do you go through that process? I mean, when everything shifts, how do you isolate? I mean, you said I was a surgeon, I was a mother, I was a journalist. So how do you isolate what's still there and then start to think about it in a positive way? I think the first big hurdle was... I had to learn the difference between loneliness and solitude. And for someone with my personality, that is not an easy thing to learn. I turned off social media. I do not have a Facebook page. I'm not even Jewish, and the anti-Semitism was crazy. The hurtful people who truly wanted me dead, I had to get them out of my space and reconnect with nature. And I know that sounds crazy, but I have a lovely garden I've worked on for years, and I love to go hiking, and I'm better off in the woods. And I would play over what I did that was stupid, a chance for leadership that I personally feel I failed at. But I used to laugh 30 years ago when people used to always say, oh, why don't you give up medicine and just do television? I remember saying, you know, someday... There's going to be, and I always said, a white guy in a control room who's going to say, you know, I don't like her face. I don't want her on the air anymore. (laughs) And I always told the same thing very flippantly. And I said, I can always be a doctor. And I realized that that silly little joke really came back to be the core of me. So as I found my solitude... I reflected on the places I've been, the war zones, the refugee camps, the disasters, and I realized I'm now a physician healer in a global sense. And Stanford University reached out to me and offered me a professorship in the Center of Innovation for Global Health, and I found my home. And they were very interesting. When they reached out to me, they said, you need a place to perch. You can't, we can't afford to let you just be out there. Come perch at Stanford. And I found a pretty good place to perch. It was. And I found my academic voice again. But even more important, I got to reexamine who I am. And then this spring I turned 65, which for me was an extraordinary event. So I welcomed 65 as this liberating transition in my life. And now, 
facing the third third of my life, a chance to reinvent once more. The third third, we are going to come back to that in just a minute because I want to talk about longevity. But I know that you also honed in on your communication skills. Yes. And this issue that we have in this country about communicating information about health. I mean, one of the things about being on a show like the Today Show is that you got to get a story out and get all the salient details out in two and a half minutes and make all of your points. And sometimes less. And sometimes <laughs> and sometimes less than you think. And it makes you a very focused and polished communicator. So you're using those skills now to talk about that. So now, instead of having to think in 30-second sound bites and a minute and a half, I have the ability, especially with young medical students, to do the deep dive and explain why the nuances of science matters. But I'm also getting to talk to young global health students about just this point, that language matters, how we take complicated science and communicate across socioeconomic levels and sometimes across geographic boundaries. The great thing about having an MD behind your name is that it opens up doors and it shatters language barriers. So I've always relied on that, even when I've been in countries where no one understands English and I don't know the local language. There are always ways to communicate. And one of the ways when we're with people, and I think we under um, utilize it, is the ability to touch someone, to point. When AIDS came in, when I was a young surgeon in San Francisco, I think doctors looked at patients as the vectors of disease and we took a step back. Then when the craziness of Ebola happens, we all think, oh my God, the next airplane is going to infect me. And we step back further. The power of healing, the power of communication can be transferred through touch, sometimes even better than speaking a common language. These days we have more women in medical school than yeah, we have men. We do. Are women better at this? Is this a very female trait? Women are better in some forms of communication, but here's where I'm going to put on my old fogey hat and worry. Women are really filling up family practice, internal medicine, OBGYN, breast cancer specialties, wonderful fields where patients are women and children. I would like to see more women enter the sciences where Primarily men have dominated. I'd like to see more female neurosurgeons and thoracic surgeons and more women in biotech because I think that's where you change language in the boardroom and in the OR and at the hierarchy of medicine. Well, one of the things that you're doing as well, which you could not do as a journalist, is you've joined a couple of boards. I have. And you're working with these companies to help create technological solutions to solve some of the world's biggest health challenges. So talk about that and talk about how it's going to save us money. So this was one of the walking through the woods. I said, okay, I'm too young to not work. I mean, retirement is a funny word in my family, so I can't do that. So what am I really good at? I'm a really good doctor. I'm a really good communicator. I understand science. And having spent a small time at Johnson & Johnson and 
remember for a while, General Electric owned NBC. I was able to see the CEOs up close. And Jeff Immelt, I got to really watch as a leader. And I realized I love business. So I reached out to women I know, and I reached out to headhunters and said, I am actively pursuing board positions. Then this is the skill set I bring, which is very atypical. I've never been a CFO. I've never run a product line. I have never invented a drug. But a NASDAQ company, the biotech company in Boston that makes uh, neuro drugs, had a spot and believes very fervently that women should be an equal presence in the boardroom. And I joined Alchemy's a year and a half ago, one company I adore. And I've learned. I hope they think I brought something to the table. But um it is where I want to be. And now I'm on uh, two other startups, and I advise a couple young women who are starting a company at Stanford. So I'm really in the middle of biotech, an established company, and a couple startups. Very exciting. It is really cool. And, you know, people always say, why don't you go back to television? Well, I couldn't now. I would have to divest myself of all the scientific stuff I'm doing. And my brain needs that. I've, I've turned a corner and I'm on a different path. I want to talk more about that corner, more about that path and more about the last third of all of our lives in just a sec. But I want to remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives because we deserve to live lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Dr. Nancy Snyderman. You'll find information about how to manage your money during all of these stressful events in life, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. We are happy to be back with Nancy Snyderman. So a few years ago, I had the opportunity to sit in the audience when you gave a talk with, by the way, no notes. And Nancy and I had dinner the night before she gave this talk. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, I think I'm going to talk about my dad who's not doing so well and how we really need to reshape the way that we deal with caregiving. And I, my mouth must have just opened at the table because I know what I'm going to talk about before I give a talk. In fact, I have it I have it pretty much scripted and, and I'll go off script and you went in cold. I mean, you went in, you thought well, about it. Was in it. my head. You thought about it, but you did 45 minutes with no notes. And in my book, you were already a rock star, but boy, oh boy, oh boy. You lost your dad. Yes. But- I lost my dad in the spring of 2014 and I became unmoored. So I I always sort of think, if my father had been there during the Ebola craziness, would I have had another rational physician voice in my head? But he was such a big influence in my life um, that I, I it's a loss that every day I sort of think of him. I think that is how it, I lost my dad 12 years ago, and yeah. I still think about him every single day because I think that's and, just one of those things. And how lucky are we to miss someone so much versus the alternative of sort of thinking guiltily, I'm glad that person's not in my life anymore. We're hurting this much is a very weird gift. I have never thought about it like that, but I think you're exactly right. I know, though, going through the process of 
caring for your dad made you think differently about how we should care for people in the last third or quartile of life. Right. So talk to me a little bit about that, keeping in mind, you know, we're in this shift with healthcare. We don't know where things are going to end up. Medicaid is in the news every single day. How should we be preparing for our later years? So let's just all be very honest. If it is confusing to physicians and hospital administrators, it's confusing to the average person walking the street. Um, how this is all going to shake out in Congress, we don't know yet. But the one cardinal error I believe most families make is they don't talk about death and dying or sickness at all. And The time to talk about the catastrophic events is when everyone is healthy and sane. So with a dad as a surgeon, you know, we had crazy dinner table talks where, you know, where my mother would beg us to stop talking about blood and guts and we would acknowledge her (laughs) and then go ahead talking about blood and guts. But my father always said from the time he was young, um, you know, we're just renting the air we breathe. Don't ever forget that. You know, someday you'll, you leave and it's the right thing to do because you must make room for someone else. So I always had this idea that we are always in a moment of transition as much as we don't want to say goodbye to people. And I had very frank conversations with my parents. They did not want to be on a ventilator. They did not want to be in pain. They did not want to live the kind of life that they didn't get a chance to live every day. And they were brutally honest with all four adult children. Nonetheless, they lived in Princeton. I lived in Princeton. I'm the eldest and I'm the doc. So most of the decision making fell to me. And But you knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. But my dad had been through a series of, through the arrogance of sometimes being a doctor, he didn't get his shingles vaccine, which would have saved him. He ended up getting shingles and then central nervous system shingles, which nearly killed him. But no, he fought it back. But he ended up dying of a massive heart attack. But the great thing is he walked every day. He walked two miles a day before, had a massive heart attack the next day, and died within several days after that. I had a conference call, scheduled conference call with my siblings every single day during the event. So there was phenomenal transparency about his health, about money, about what I was spending to go wear, because I've seen too many adult children fight over the corpse of the estate, the money. I was promised this. I was promised that. You you let daddy die. You didn't feed daddy. Why did you put a tube in daddy? We weren't going to have any of that. So conference calls. And what was pretty darn funny was even though all four of us knew what our parents' wishes were, on conference calls, our own biases came out. When my father was failing, my sister said, well, can't you just feed him more? I had another brother who said, well, can't we get physical therapy in? And my brother, the brain surgeon, said, guys, this is what dying looks like. So it's like, oh my God, this is what families look like. But we got through it. He had a great death. We mourned him. We laugh about things now. But the great gift my father gave us was that he pushed us to deal with reality early on. A lot of people don't have somebody pushing them. So to our listeners, what advice do you have? When is it time? You said when you're healthy. Well, that's a long period of time. So when is it time to step up and have the first conversation, if you haven't had one, about 
wishes and finances. So I think this is where farm families have it over city families all the time. You want to look at sex ed. Farm kids know how animals procreate. They watch the barn. They see the babies. <laughs> so, but you can take the same extrapolation that if the family cat dies, you say, yeah, you know what? Cats don't live as long as human beings, but sometime all of us are going to go. But that's why we save money in the bank to take care of all the things we need to. So if something happens to your brother or to daddy, blah, 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 and then you change the conversation to fit your family. But when these little bumps in the road happen, use them to teach. We woefully don't talk about sex and sex ed enough at an early enough age. And we don't talk about death and dying in our 40s and 50s so that we can honor the parents who have raised us well. There is a great program called Death Over Dinner run out of Boston, and it's terrific. You can just Google Death Over Dinner and you'll find it. And it's a way to, say, invite four or six of your friends, have them over for dinner and say, okay, glad you're all here. I want you to hear my wishes so that if Cousin Joe, who hasn't seen me in 30 years, suddenly arrives, you can say, no, I had dinner with Nancy on October 12th, and she precisely said, boom, boom, boom. And then you do it with friends or you do it with family? Both. Because sometimes I think friends can back up your words even more than family. And share your living will with your friends and your family and keep talking about it and keep updating it. You know, your decision at 50 may look different at 70, um, but definitely talk about it. You're, I don't want to be infirmed and have people think that there are gray zones. There are enough last-minute decisions where you sometimes have to question yourself. But most of the things that cost people to waste money in the final year of life, throwing hundreds of thousands of dollars at insolvable problems in the ICU, that is money down the toilet. Sit on it, pass it through to your grandkids and save the taxes. This is where financial consultants and life consultants, I think, can come together and really give good advice early on. Because you're saying most people don't want those last-ditch efforts. Most people don't want the last-ditch efforts. Most people, however, do get the last-ditch efforts. Total waste of money. You line up ICU personnel, doctors, nurses, aides, they'll tell horror story after horror story of trying to talk families out of doing something. And they'll say, no, 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 whatever you can do to save my mom. You're not saving anybody. You're just spending money. And it's, in, in many ways, I've said this countless times before. We treat our animals with more respect than we treat our moms and dads, not because we don't respect our parents, because we have not prepared to say goodbye. Dr. Nancy Snyderman, thank you so much. You bet, Jean. I'll see you soon. All righty. And we'll be right back. Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kel. Hi, everyone. You're looking very summery. Thank you. Well, it's what is it? It's late September, September 26th on the day that we are recording this. More importantly, it's Hayden's birthday. Happy birthday, Hayden. Happy birthday, Hayden. I dressed up for her. You did? I did. Aw. I did. That's nice. <laughs> she's weak. She's winking at me now. <laughs> <laughs> I try to, um, you know, I love this time of year, fall, the start of fall, because when I switch over my closet, I don't have a particularly large closet, so I, I keep things in a 
closet in the basement, and then I switch them out in the spring and in the fall. And it always feels like I got all these new clothes. That's so the best I get feeling. I get so excited because I don't remember what I have exactly, and I get to see stuff. But it's been so warm, such yes. Indian summer that I haven't done it yet. So we'll see. That is why I am dressed in this very summery dress, because it is practically 90 degrees out at the end of September in New York City. But you look great. Thank you very much. All right. What do we have? Our first question this week comes from Elizabeth. She writes, my company offers an employee stock option plan, which I've taken advantage of for the past four years. I invest a percentage of my salary automatically, and it's an account I have rarely checked. The stock pays a dividend, which I knew, but I didn't realize I hadn't set my account to reinvest it. Now I have a decent sum of cash sitting in my account. Should I continue to not reinvest the dividend and use that money to purchase other stocks I'm interested in, or should I reinvest my dividend in company stock no matter what using fun money, she has that in quotation marks, to buy stocks? I'm afraid if I reinvest my dividend into company stock, I will never actively pursue the stock market. So interesting. Mm -hmm. So I think you answered your own question (laughs) in the very last line. But there are just some parameters here. We don't want to have too much money in company stock overall. Some people say you don't want to have more than 25% of your money in company stock of your investment portfolio, and that includes everything that's in your 401k or your other accounts. Some people say 10%. And the reason for this is that If your company hits the skids, you could lose both your job and a substantial portion of that investment because the stock goes down at the same time. So it's just too much risk to be taking. The problem is the way that some of these plans are structured, you can't get the money out of company stock while you are still working for the company. And so... I would say look at the percentage that you have in company stock, see where it falls in terms of your overall holdings. If you're, you know, 15% or less and you want to put the money into company stock because you think this is the best investment, okay. If you're over that, definitely look at other things. And if you're around that number, and you want to explore researching and making other investments in different stocks, I think this is a perfectly good way to go about it. Thank you, Elizabeth. Our next question is from JC. She says she recently received her free annual credit report online and noticed some spelling errors. She writes, my first name was spelled incorrectly in two of the five names associated with your credit section, and my employer was also spelled wrong. Should I report these? Yeah, these are minor um, mistakes. A lot of people have these types of mistakes on their credit report. Go ahead, report them, try to get them cleaned up, make sure you report them to all three credit bureaus because chances are if it exists on one, it probably exists on the other. But this is a good reason to just pull all your reports from annualcreditreport.com and go on from there. I, I wouldn't worry that these are killing your score or anything like that, but we just like to see these documents accurate. And even spelling errors are inaccuracies. What's the one document, financial document, that you do want to make sure everything is spelled correctly, including your name? I think you're probably talking about tax returns. Your tax return, if you have those sorts of inaccuracies, it can cause your tax return to get kicked back to you. And nobody likes to get Mm -hmm. any sort of correspondence from the IRS, even if it's just benignly asking you to correct something. Okay. So it's good to know to not freak out so much about credit report, but get them fixed regardless. Yeah. 
Okay. And finally, one from Deirdre with the Equifax breach. Should we be worried about our children's information? I tried to enroll my minor children, 15 and 17, and it would not let me, nor would it let me freeze them. Just wondering. It may not have any record of your children, and that, by the way, is a good thing. I think this breach is just a wake-up call that we should be checking for our children to make sure that nobody has taken out credit in their names. Again, annualcreditreport.com. Try to pull the credit reports for your minor children. It's bad news if they have credit reports, because that does show that somebody has gotten in touch with their information or has grabbed their information and has taken out credit in their name. And at that point, you want to take steps to shut it down. But that's where I would start. Excellent. Thank you, Jean. Thanks, Kelly. And in our Thrive segment this week, just a reminder about those important documents that Nancy Snyderman was talking about. She mentioned a living will, which is a document that allows you to tell a hospital whether or not you want life support or other life-extending measures. Um, everybody should have one of these. They are part of a basic estate plan. The other three parts that every person should at least consider having include a healthcare proxy, which is sometimes called a medical directive or a durable power of attorney for healthcare. This gives another person the ability to make healthcare decisions on your behalf. You also want a durable power of attorney for finances, which gives another person the ability to make financial decisions, pay your bills, trade stocks in your portfolio if you're unable to do so for yourself. And finally, a will. Do you need a will? If you've got minor children, you absolutely need a will because a will is the only document that will allow you to name guardians for those kids. If you're single, if you have belongings and you care about what happens to those belongings, if something happens to you, you also need a will. The good news about all of this stuff is it doesn't have to be expensive. You can get all of these documents by using software like Quicken Wills. You could also use LegalZoom or you could go to a lawyer where for roughly $500 to $1,500, you can get the whole kit and caboodle basic estate package. Something to think about. Thank you so much to Dr. Nancy Snyderman for spending some time with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you to our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX, and we'll talk soon. 